Hi, welcome to the Freehoff Institute of Progressive Halakha. I'm Rabbi Mark Wachowski, and this is the 12-minute shiur number 11, Prayer in Translation. Is it kosher? Part 4, Tachlis. Now, we say Tachlis because this episode focuses upon a practical application of all the theory on this issue that we learned in parts 1, 2, and 3. It comes in the form of a teshuvah, or responsum, by Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg, a leading 20th century Orthodox halachic authority, or posek. Rabbi Weinberg, a Holocaust survivor, was the last Rosh Yeshiva of the Hildesheimer Rabbinical Seminary, the so-called Modern Orthodox Rabbinical School in Berlin, which the Nazis shut down in 1938. To follow the text, download the source sheet at our website. The Sheila, or question, on lines 12 through 15, comes from Leo Jung, the rabbi of the Jewish Center of New York. The congregation, to this day a bastion of modern orthodoxy, was embroiled in a controversy over whether to introduce English readings into the service. Weinberg calls these readings mizmorim, which means psalms or poems, and maybe the idea was that some of the psuche de zimra, the introductory psalms, be recited in English translation. Now, while it's hard to imagine any such question arising in a modern Orthodox synagogue today, back in 1954, the issue was real enough because many members of the congregation would have lacked the necessary Hebrew education to participate fully in the worship service. Weinberg defines the issue in lines 13 and 15 as she'ela adina me'od, a very delicate question. What makes it so delicate? He explains in lines 17 and 19 that mitzad hadin bivadai she'en kan isul. As a matter of formal halacha or din, this is certainly not prohibited, for even the tefillah itself may be recited in the vernacular. And he recites the relevant psaq in the Shulchan Aruch. So, if the actual tefillah may be recited in English, then Kalvachomer, there'd be no problem with adding English readings to other parts of the service. But Weinberg is quick to point out that even if the halacha permits this innovation, it would be really a bad idea. In lines 22 through 29, he argues that it would cause Rabbi Jung's opponents, maybe those outside the congregation, maybe those within it, to make the false but plausible-sounding claim that who min hamitaknim chas that he's a reformer, God forbid. Moreover, this sort of change would cause anxiety and aggravation for the truly faithful who despise any and every change of custom and innovation. And why would Rabbi Jung want to do that? What's important here for our purposes is that Weinberg argues against the introduction of English readings, not on the basis of halakha, because he can't. The halakha would be fine with this. But rather, he argues on the basis of what we might think are non-halachic considerations, the social and political harm that this change would cause for Rabbi Jung and for the more observant members of his shul. And it is only at this point that Weinberg cites the ruling of the Hatam Sofer that prohibits tefillah in the vernacular. And we find that on lines 31 through 36. Asur. 
The rabbis permitted vernacular prayer only on an occasional basis, but it is forbidden to establish vernacular prayer as a fixed observance, for such will lead to the disappearance of the holy language. And by the way, Weinberg, like the Chatam Sofer, uses the term Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language, and never the more secular-sounding term Ivrit, or Hebrew. Not only is Lashon HaKodesh the religious designation for Hebrew, but using the term gives him a rhetorical advantage, because if one language can be defined as Kodesh, then all other languages pale into insignificance in comparison with that language, and it allows him to make an argument for Hebrew that is much stronger simply on that rhetorical basis. Now, as we discussed in the 12-minute shiur number 9, Sofer developed a creative theory to justify his prohibition of vernacular prayer. Tefillah, he says, as we know it today, is not an expression of one's heart, but rather the act of reciting a text composed by the members of the Great Assembly. And just as the medieval halachic authorities ruled that we cannot recite the Megillah in the vernacular, even though the texts seem to allow that because we can't render a precise translation of all its words, so does Sofer argue that any effort to translate the text of the tefillah is bound to lose something of the sense of the original. Except in rare circumstances, therefore, the safest course is to recite the prayer as it was originally composed, in Hebrew or Lashon HaKodesh, the holy language, no matter what the halacha happens to say. By waiting until now to cite Sofer's ruling and by referring only to its bottom line and leaving out all that supporting argumentation, Weinberg indicates that Sofer's theory should not be confused with the din, the formal halacha, which clearly does permit the recitation of the tefillah b'chol lashon in any language the worshiper understands. What truly motivated Sofer was the concern that to allow synagogue prayer in the vernacular would remove a major incentive for the Jews to learn Hebrew. Weinberg agrees with that concern, and he amplifies the point in the next section of his Teshuvah, lines 38 through 47. If you make Hebrew the exclusive language of the synagogue, you will actually encourage people to learn it. He adds that the exclusive use of Hebrew strengthens halgashat ha-kedushah the sense of holiness that ought to attach to the synagogue and to prayer. By contrast, the vernacular is loshon zara, a foreign or alien tongue, the opposite of kodesh, or holiness. Weinberg does not address the obvious counter-argument that Hebrew, Hebrew is a foreign language to many Jews today, and that in order to nurture the sense of holiness, it might be better to let people pray in a language that, in, that they understand in which they normally express their thoughts and feelings. He does make a concession to this point at the very end, lines 66 and 67, where he says that women, because he thinks that this question really comes from the women in the congregation, but this would presumably include men who don't know Hebrew, can always follow along in an English translation, so what's the big deal? In lines 19 through 50, uh, 49 through 57, Weinberg offers ta'am sheni la'isul, a second reason supporting the prohibition. 
We should not abandon or change our ancestral custom, Minhag Avotenu. He backs this with a quote from Rabbi Chaim Halberstadt, an opponent of religious reform in the 19th century, who wrote, She'ikal datenu miyusad al Torah avot. The oral Torah and the customs of our ancestors are the foundation of our religion, meaning that you can't reform our customary practices without destroying what is essential, ikar, to our Judaism. And in lines 59 through 64, Weinberg relies upon a familiar slippery slope argument that if you allow folks to add English readings to the service, it won't be long before they start clamoring to say the tefillah itself, the major portion of the liturgy, in English. And for an Orthodox synagogue to do that would be to violate the prohibition of giving aid and comfort to minim, heretics, by which he means, of course, Reformed Jews, who already recite their liturgy largely in the vernacular. So, in this teshuva, Rabbi Weinberg openly concedes that the din, the formal halakha, permits us to recite our liturgy b'chol lashon, in any language that we understand. He tells us that even the Hatam Sofer recognized this. Weinberg thus ignores Sofer's halachic theory that seems to demonstrate otherwise. The reason we should not permit any vernacular in our worship has more to do with a series of concerns that are outside the formal halakha, the, the need to preserve the Hebrew language, the desire to strengthen the sense of holiness in the worship experience, our reverence for minhag, and the orthodox desire to draw lines of distinction between themselves and the reformers. All of these are concerns that we might define as non-halachic. I don't mean to minimize these concerns. Lahefech, they're absolutely crucial. What I mean to suggest is that a posek sitting down to decide a question of halacha really cannot do so in absolute isolation from the surrounding so-called non-halachic issues that ordinarily give shape to and provide direction to the posek's ultimate psak. These non-halachic arguments are really not non-halachic at all, because they can be and are an essential part of the halachic decision-making process. A decision-maker, a posse, cannot render a decision without considering them, taking them into account either explicitly or implicitly. A progressive halachic authority considering this question would bring a somewhat different set of concerns to the table and would therefore be led to uphold the din in this case, the formal halakha, and to endorse the practice of vernacular prayer. That's precisely what the early European reform rabbis did. Their case was every bit as halachic as that of the Chatam Sofer and Rabbi Yechiel Yaakov Weinberg. The question then is not what the halakha says, but how we propose to read it, to understand its message, given the challenges we face in our particular segment of the, our particular segment of the Jewish community. This has been the 12-minute shiur number 11 from the Freehoff Institute of Progressive Halakha. Got a question or a comment? Send us an email at freehoffinfo at gmail.com. Thanks for learning with us. Lehitraot.